Hello, my bubblas. Welcome to a bonus episode of The Lee Show. It's very nice to be here with all of you. Quick reminder, I do this podcast and I write essays because I like sharing a perspective and a voice that you're not going to find elsewhere in the media. And I love doing it. I know from my listeners that you love it too, which is amazing. Remember that most podcasts you listen to, they're probably well-known, millions of listeners. I'm not one of those yet. So if you're listening to this, you are in on a little secret, and I depend on your support to keep doing it. So please go to leebrestler.substack.com slash subscribe to sign up. It's not very expensive. It's worth it. And if you sign up as a founding member, you'll get special bonus content. You can request topics that you want to hear about. So please sign up. Feedback from the ep episode I did earlier in the week about Jeffrey Epstein and the Omicron COVID uh, was focused on two things so far that I've heard about a lot. The first was that I was not tough enough on all of these schools, these idiotic schools that have mandated vaccines for young kids. And I'm, I'm planning a more in-depth episode on this topic in the next couple of weeks. You know, my, my personal thinking is just, this is a colossal level of groupthink. And I've, I've asked, I've asked now multiple times if anyone can explain to me why it is useful for kids to get this vaccine, why that is worthy as a public policy and as a mandate. And nobody has been able to explain it to me. Nobody's been able to do that. You know, what I said was I'm, I'm willing to tolerate anything and I'm willing to tolerate things with a high degree of uncertainty if there's some logic to it. Right. If someone says, we don't know for sure, but this seems sensible and here's why. That's a perfectly good way to frame a public policy choice, especially when you are wading into something new. But we're now like 18 months into this. It's not new anymore. These aren't new policy choices. These are decisions that we've had time to think through. So why do we still see this same idiot, this Fauci guy on TV every week? Do the casting people not have anyone else in reserve that they can go to? Why do we keep seeing this guy? Why does he just keep saying stuff that's guesswork? Like, is he not discredited enough at this point? Why do they, why do they give him a, a platform? He, he's saying we should shut the borders to the new Omicron COVID so that it seems like we're doing something. I mean, what, what is that? That's nonsense. Meanwhile, in the UK, Boris Johnson is talking about new restrictions as a way to, quote, buy time. Like, what are we buying time for? This just doesn't make sense. Anyways, we're going to discuss this more in depth uh, uh, next week. I'm lining up an excellent guest who's going to cover the topic with me. So stay tuned for that. The other major area of feedback was from people who were very grateful for the Jeffrey Epstein uh, discussion because they had no understanding of the mechanics of what he did. But also people said, I didn't focus enough on the other major area of his bad behavior, which was that he himself was, you know, sampling the goods. He wasn't just pimping these underage women out for his extortion ring. He was also 
taking advantage of them and molesting them. And I, I sort of assumed that was well known, but that the interesting part here was the mechanics of how he did it. Uh, but I, I guess not. Um, you know, look, there was nothing about this guy that was legitimate. He was, this was not an honest businessman who, who happened to sleep with underage women. This is a guy who full-time ran a, a criminal enterprise and had no redeeming qualities. And it's too bad he never got to testify about what he had done, but it's no great loss for the world that this guy is dead. And anyone who tries to cast Ghislaine Maxwell, I still don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Anyone who tries to cast her as a victim, which is what her, her attorneys are doing in the trial, is lying to you. She was a pimp and she enabled the entire con. She trafficked all these young women. So she can now sit there and claim to be scapegoated by people upset with Epstein. But the reality is that she is just as guilty as he is. And maybe she'll claim that Les Wexner should have been prosecuted. I don't know. Whitney Webb has done some good writing about this. I'm going to include a link to that in the Substack. So maybe Maxwell will, Lady G, should we call her Lady G? Maybe she'll claim that the accusers are after money. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, it just, it, it feels like she is just as guilty as Epstein. And I'm sure her lawyers are going to say, that any of the victims that that's come forth that they're misremembering or they're confused. Remember that was like a thing in the 1990s when people started coming forth with all these terrible accusations of being molested as kids. And then there'd be some lawyer who would, you know, get an expert to talk about how memory is flaky and we like invent things in the human mind and that kind of stuff. You know, one small positive that has come out of the trial so far is this manual that was given to staff members at Epstein's house in Palm Beach. And it's fascinating to read this. I don't think I realized before reading this that Maxwell and Epstein fully lived together. And it's unclear if they were in separate bedrooms or, or if they shared the master bedroom. It sort of indicates both in the manual. But there's also some incredible details. So uh, a few that I picked out, uh, number one, this was amazing. There's a quote. It says, remember that you see nothing, hear nothing, say nothing. That's a, <clears throat> a good one for the staff. Uh, there is a master bedroom checklist for the cleaning people. The final bullet of the checklist says Epstein's gun must always be placed in the bedside table drawer. I wonder what he used that for. Uh, interesting to note, the skincare products that they had the house uh, filled with were, were pretty plebeian. Like they weren't using fancy stuff despite having plenty of money. Um, another one that I noticed was interesting was that the staff had to make sure there was $100 in the glove box or center console of all cars at all times. Uh, number five, uh, that uh, Lady G had notepads that said Lady Gilin at the top of them. Um, I would love to get my hands on one of those. That'd be a great souvenir. Uh, and, and the last one I noticed, the food that they had the staff purchase every time they came to the house wasn't very fancy. It was like boar's head ham and kick cereal. Uh, so just kind of interesting, not, not a very uh, sophisticated list there. You know, if 
if you're listening to this and you are extremely rich to the point that you have a manual for your household staff, would you please let me know if this list seems pretty standard to you? Not not like having a manual. That part's not surprising. But it just, it reads kind of basic, I guess. One of the most fun stories this past week was uh, reported by CBC News in Canada. So I guess a woman named Carrie Burasa was passing herself off as an indigenous person. I don't Do they call them Native Americans in Canada? I'm not sure. Even though it turns out her ancestors were all European. And she held the job of health minister for indigenous people. She was like kind of celebrated in Canada. We talked about as one of the most powerful women in Canada. And it's kind of sick. I mean, I appreciate the grift of it. She told people that her name was Morningstar Bear, which I guess makes it sound indigenous. Um, I, I don't know. Do you have to be an indigenous person to have the job of health minister for that group? I, maybe that's a requirement. Uh, but it's she's clearly taking advantage of someone else's background and sympathies to accrue some benefit for herself. And she she really went for it. She would dress up in full tribal regalia. She'd wear a headdress. And her colleagues realized that it was a con when she started adding more and more tribes to her background and saying, oh, I'm not just this tribe, but I'm actually this one and this one. And like, I, I don't know, I, that seems to maybe not make sense. Um, it also didn't help that indigenous people in Canada get some kind of an ID card that shows their tribal affiliation. She didn't have one. Uh, and then her, her sister uh, came out and was like, I'm not. I'm not an indigenous person. Um, I'm, I'm including a picture in the Substack. You really got to see it because it's it's remarkable to see. And as I mean, basically, she's like Hilaria Baldwin. We've discussed her in the past. You know, for those who don't remember, Hilaria Baldwin, um, Alec Baldwin's wife. She's this white lady from Boston. She went to private school, uh, and and I guess we all like to reinvent ourselves when we go to college. But Hilaria started talking with a Spanish accent and telling people that she comes from Mallorca, which is also a little nuts. And she kept this grift going for a long time. There's this amazing clip from the Today Show where she pretends she doesn't know the English word for cucumber. Let's, let me see if I can pull up this. Uh... We have very few ingredients. We have tomatoes. We have, um, how do you say cucumbers? We have, um... How amazing is that? She, she points on it. She goes, it's a, how you say in English, a cucumbers. Um, I, I mean, it's just amazing. It's just all, it's all fake. Um, I wonder how Hilaria is doing with all the excitement going on with Alec Baldwin. You know, I wonder after uh, Alec Baldwin shot that lady, if Hilaria offered her a, uh, how you say cucumber. Look, to be clear, I feel a little bit bad for him. Like, I don't think he wanted to kill someone. But it seems like he is both a victim and responsible for what happened on the set of this movie. Like they're filming a Western and they've got some 24-year-old lady in charge of the props and the guns. She's never done this job before. The entire movie set is a shit show. The union labor, this is interesting. All the unionized workers had walked off the set of this movie because of unsafe practices and the rest of the crew was taking these prop guns out into the desert to shoot real bullets. That's not like there's no reason there should be real bullets on the set of a movie. They were keeping the real bullets 
on the same shelf as the blanks. So Alec Baldwin, he violates the first rule of gun safety. He points the gun at another person and he pulls the trigger. Now that's incredibly stupid. Like I've been around guns since I was nine years old. Gun safety is pretty innate for me. I mean, it's nuts. And, and, but, but I think where he is, like, I don't think he meant to kill someone, but I think where he is culpable is that he was the producer of that movie. He was responsible for hiring the people who were on the crew or, or hiring the person who hired the people on the crew. And like, I, I don't think he meant to be a murderer again, but he also killed someone. And I do think he has some ethical responsibility for what happened. George Stephanopoulos interviewed Alec Baldwin this week. And the interview was disgusting. I mean, that was really bad. And, and Baldwin just totally blamed this poor woman that he shot. He said, quote, I'm holding the gun where she told me to hold it, which ended up right below her armpit, which is what I was told. I don't know. I, like, So he's saying she told him to point the gun below her armpit. I don't know. Does that make sense? And then he tried blaming the gun. He said that it fired himself. Like that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I've been around guns my whole life. Guns don't fire themselves. So I think what he did was reckless. It was dangerous. Maybe he has some legal liability for it. I'm sure he's upset, right? How could you not be upset about killing a mother of two children? But this interview, I don't know who the audience was meant to be for this. It sure made him seem a lot less sympathetic. Anyways, I, I digress. Morningstar Bear. I don't know. Is this, is this going to be a thing now where people are, are trying to pretend to be some other race because it provides them with some benefit? Like she clearly pretended to be indigenous because it would be beneficial for her. And then I, I got to ask, if that's the case, does that somehow undermine the concept of systemic racism? Like if you're identity as an indigenous person is good and beneficial to your career. Why is it bad to be that? I don't know. I mean, it, we, we sort of debated this years ago when that lady, Rachel Dolezal in Oregon, she was <clears throat> this white lady from St. Louis, but she was the president of like the local NAACP chapter. She told everyone she was black. I'm, I'm going to put a picture of it in the Substack, And it raises a question like, can you choose your race? Is that an identity you could choose the way you could choose your, your gender? I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what the answer should be to that and what that means. Like it, it's genuinely confounding because like we're, no one is exactly the same color as anyone else. We, we broadly classify people. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I got to think more about this. You know, one of the most popular episodes of the podcast that I've done, uh, one of the favorite, one of one of my favorite pieces to do was about how California is crumbling under the weight of just horrendous political mismanagement, and it's everyone from the governor to the local district attorneys—they're doing a really bad job. In the biggest cities in California, they're just. They're, they're suffering. The, the whole state is falling apart. And the, the common thread that unites them is a sort of project, a, a, an idea that there are too many people going to prison and it's time to decarcerate. And I guess there's something sensible about this, right? The idea that the idea is that there are laws that are systemically racist because there are more blacks in prison. Like the fact that there are more blacks in prison means that the laws are racist. And 
that the fact that blacks get longer sentences for the same offenses compared to whites means that they are systemically racist. And I, I don't know, I'm not going to explore like the, the sort of third rail topics here of whether there are more blacks in prison because they commit more crimes or because there's more cops in black neighborhoods. Like I'm not going to go full David Duke here and get into a theory that, that blacks have criminal proclivities. That's not a sensible direction to take this discussion. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that to be clear, but let's accept the premise that the laws are oppressing blacks disproportionately. Let's like give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's accept that premise. Let's accept that that is bad and that we want to find a solution to the problem. And so the folks that are in charge in California, to some extent in New York and in other cities, they've decided that the answer is this decarceration movement. And the movement is focused on, number one, not charging several behaviors as crimes. Remember, the, the concept of crime is like it's just a behavior that we've categorized a certain way. So they've said, we're going to focus on not charging several behaviors as crimes, even if the laws, if the statutes say they are crimes, uh, they're going to look for shorter sentences for more serious behavior. Uh, they're going to try to eliminate cash bail, right? The idea that uh, someone ends up in, 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 in jail for a long time because they can't afford the $1,000 to make bail for some uh, offense. And then the guy loses his job. He can't provide for his family. You have all kinds of knock-on effects that essentially discriminate against the poor. So that's the theory here. The question then is, is, is decarceration the right, not only is it the right goal, but is it the right way to do this, right? Does this strategy work? Do the benefits outweigh the costs? And then if you try this experiment and it doesn't work, are you willing to reverse course or are you just going to double down on this? And if you're just going to double down on it, then you've shown that you are not responsible enough to hold political office. You should be chased out. And so far, it seems that this isn't working. It's not going well. So I'll accept that it's an interesting goal, but this is not working. California is in chaos. Crime rates are up, up, up. Stores are fleeing San Francisco in droves. Places are boarded up. Like, didn't we learn our lesson from, I don't know, say the 1970s, that crime is bad for cities. It makes people not want to live there. It drives down the property values. It diminishes the entire area. There's no way you can argue that that is good for people of color. I just don't buy it. It seems like the entire philosophy around this is a failure and it isn't helping anyone. It's causing massive disruption in these cities. You know, it, just last week, uh, the media was reporting about these, quote, flash mobs that have been taking place, which are, they're just organized robberies, right? You just have a, a, a gang of people in mass that, that break into a Nordstrom's and shatter the glass and steal a bunch of pocketbooks. And why, why is that good? Well, first of all, why are we branding these flash mobs? Like what kind of weird euphemism is that? It's just another example of out of control crime. And President Biden's press secretary, who spins as much as anyone, she blamed them on COVID. 
I, I don't see how that makes any sense at all. I mean, this is just organized crime. And she gave a press conference about these smash and grab robberies. And there was a reporter there named Peter Ducey. And he pushed back on the concept. And he said, so you, this is a quote. So when a huge group of criminals organizes themselves and they want to go loot a store, a CVS, a Nordstrom, a Home Depot, until the shelves are clean, do you think that's because of the pandemic? That's a good question, because I don't see how you could argue that it is. It's just opportunistic looting. And, I, you know, I, I have to say I have a sense that we're starting to see the pendulum swing in the opposite direction. I think we're moving towards refund the police being the rallying cry. I think people are realizing that this was not successful and that the the defund the police movement was awful for poor people, for black people. You know, it became this prominent slogan after George Floyd died, after the Black Lives Matter con artists took over. But it turns out that it's a really stupid slogan. It turns out that Black Lives Matter is actually just an a, a, a group that tries to enrich the founders and buy a bunch of property. And it's a stupid idea. So we've got these major recall movements to get the worst of the, the political lot out of office, the George Gascons and Chesa Budins, and they're all morons. It's time for them to go. You know, I, I, on this topic, I posted on Instagram about Seth Rogen's tweet from last week. And the tweet, I'm, I'm going to read you what he uh, what he said. So the tweet was in response to someone else's tweet. So there's a, a YouTube star named Casey Neistat, and he wrote, So our cars got robbed this morning because Los Angeles is a crime-riddled third-world shithole of a city, but tremendous appreciation and gratitude to the hardworking officers at the LAPD West LA, who not only arrested the motherfucker, but they got all of our stolen goods back. So Casey Neistat had his car broken into, and that's a, a bummer. And Seth Rogen said, dude, I've lived here over 20 years. You're nuts. Ha ha. It's lovely here. Don't leave anything valuable in it. It's called living in a big city. And that is also a little stupid. Like, sure, maybe there's something to the idea of like, don't leave something expensive in plain view. But also, you shouldn't just expect your car to be broken into. And then Seth Rogen wrote, you can be mad, but I guess I don't personally view my car as an extension of myself. And I've never really felt violated any of the 15 or so times. That's fucking crazy. That my car was broken into once a guy accidentally left a cool knife in my car. So if it keeps happening, you might get a little treat. So that's that was what Seth Rogen's wisdom was, that his car was broken into 15 times. And he never saw it as an extension of himself. He didn't mind. Like, I can't imagine a more disconnected Marie Antoinette kind of moment of being out of touch with the needs of, of just anyone, right? Yeah, it's got to be nice to be so rich that when your car is broken into, you just send your assistant to get you a new Range Rover. You can have the driver, you know, drive you around. It's just, it, it's, it's so deranged to me to read that. And that he thinks this is reasonable. Now, look, the, the guy is a he—he's—he's he's a, a drug addict and a stoner and a fucking moron. But it's just insane to me that he doesn't understand why this would be distressing. Like, what if you're poor? What if you can't afford 
a new car. You can't afford to pay for the increase in your insurance. You can't afford to be without a vehicle for a week while it gets fixed. What if you can't afford Ubers? What if you live in your car? Right? Like, how is Seth Rogen defending this as if it's a normal thing? And what else, what other deranged things would he defend as normal things? Would Seth Rogen take the side of Lady G? Would Seth Rogen take the side of these uh, 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 flash mobs, these looters at Nordstrom who pepper sprayed a security guard? I, I mean, I really, I got to crown Seth Rogen as, as the biggest idiot of 2021 with that tweet. I mean, it was just incredibly stupid. When I was growing up, my uh, mother worked from home. She was an attorney. Uh, she had lots of paper, lots of files sitting around. And when I was in second grade, my parents decided to renovate our apartment. Now, renovating in New York City, any kind of construction in New York City, it's always an ordeal. Uh, my mother added her kind of special touch to make it that much more difficult. Like, if you think that I am extra, you should have met my mother. She was kind of out of her mind a lot of the time. And so we did this this project. It was a massive renovation. They They gutted the apartment. She spent like a year planning it with these architects and designers. She was obsessed with it. And, and they planned out very elaborate details. It was beautiful. It was this amazing Art Deco style. The building was very Art Deco. Um, you know, I don't think you would do something in that style right now. But at the time, it was amazing. It was like an Architectural Digest magazine. It was really cool. And while the renovation was in process, we moved to this rental apartment for like nine months on 79th Street, which I, I guess nine months for a gut renovation is not a crazy amount of time by, by New York City standards. So um, anyways, my mother was was uh, this attorney. She worked from home and she was a trust and estates attorney. So she did wills for people and she specialized in doing wills for gay people. And she had lots of wealthy clients who were HIV positive. And it, side note, some of them had this like very strong smell. And I don't know if that was from the Kaposi's sarcoma or what that was from. But like I could always tell when she had one of these clients over at our house because she would have to leave a dish of ammonia out on the floor of the dining room to absorb the smell after her client left. Um, anyways, she, um, she had tons of files, tons of documents. She would make copies all the time. And, and when we did this big renovation, she used one of the closets in her bedroom. She built it out for one of those giant floor standing Xerox machines, like the kind you would have in an office. And maybe back then you needed that kind of machine, but like, that's a lot of, of copy machine for a New York city apartment. And in seventh grade, I discovered that my father had an old playboy and an old penthouse magazine. He kept them hidden in one of his old briefcases in his closet. And I guess he, he thought no one would look in there. And I, I, just discovered the virtues of taking myself down. So this was incredible. Now, to be clear, it is not a good idea for a 12-year-old to discover something like that. Maybe it's kind of inevitable these days because internet, but I would recommend trying to shelter your kids a bit longer than that. So I was terrified I would get caught with the magazines. So I came up with this ingenious plan where I would get a stack of my own magazines. Like I had a subscription to Sports Illustrated for kids. 
and I would bring the stack of magazines into my parents' bedroom. And then I would get the nudie magazines out of my father's closet. I'd slide them in the middle of the stack of the Sports Illustrated, and I would bring them over to the copy machine. And I made photocopies of the magazines as if that's like a thing that people do is just copying magazines. But remember that the, 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 the nudie magazines had like kind of a, a, a flat binding to them. I don't know what you call it. So the edge of each image was like really distorted in the photocopy. And I would copy as many pages as I could before I would get too nervous that I would get caught. And then I'd put the magazines back in the old briefcase and I'd take the photocopies to my bathroom. And at the time, my favorite thing to do was to lock myself in the bathroom and just, you know, abuse myself repeatedly, which I guess you can do at that age. Uh, but I realized that I needed some kind of cover story. So I would turn on the shower and I would just let it run for like 45 minutes. And the, the ceiling of the bathroom was painted and the steam from the shower being on for so long caused the paint to have water damage. And my my mother had to have it repainted twice before she had the ceiling tiled as well. So that it wouldn't keep happening. Anyways, I, I discovered the magazines. I would take the photocopies into the shower with me. It was one of those like shower bath combos. And I'd lie down in the tub and with just a tiny bit of, of, of water, I would uh, um, wallpaper these pictures all over the tile walls. And then I would just flagellate myself until the steam had and the water had totally destroyed the paper and it would all slide off the walls and just like disintegrate down the drain. And it was like this, such a graphic thing, right? Being surrounded by this sort of distorted black and white imagery of naked women. And, you know, I'm too young to appreciate that this is not good for me developmentally. And after several months of this, I, uh, I told one of my friends at school and somehow word got to a teacher. And then there was this game of telephone where the teacher told the head of the upper school that I had brought porn to school, which I had not done. And then they called my parents and told my parents I'd brought porn to school. Again, inaccurate. So then I got in trouble. My father, either he threw away the magazines or he hid them better. I don't know, but I never saw them again. Anyways, I wouldn't have given this much thought, but I... Uh, I watched season two of Dave and uh, it's excellent. I think it's better than season one, much more emotion, tight scripts, really strong acting. I was very impressed. And in one of the episodes, he goes back to his parents' house and, and does the same thing. He goes on the computer, he prints out these pictures of hot women from 2002. And then he goes in the shower and he plasters them on the wall. And it's like wild to see. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published The Lee Show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio, I upload it and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify. They'll get you on Apple podcasts, all the leading players 
and you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I mean, it, it was so bizarre because I just saw myself reflected in that and I'd assumed I was unique in, in this one, but uh, apparently not. I started watching Succession, the TV show. There was like so much hype about it. And it always looked stupid. Like I resisted watching it for so long because it looked stupid. And then I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. And I'm mostly done with the first season. My instincts are completely validated. It's a very stupid show. I think the writing is bad. Uh, it seems to suffer from that thing where writers just want to make something into a soap opera. And so they rush through the details. But there's a lot, there's like a lot of details and, and drama that you could unpack here. And it feels like it would be a lot better if they just slowed down. I mean, the first two episodes of the show could be two whole seasons of a show if they were more patient. I think the only redeeming thing about the show is the Macaulay Culkin character. His his character, Roman, is pretty funny. He acts the part pretty well. I mean, there's so much you could write about a family with an overbearing father figure and how he screws up his kids but like, tell the story of the family, tell the story of their childhoods, let the story breathe a little. There's this uh, documentary about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and their home run drama from 1999. Remember, they were both all juiced up on steroids and seeing who could hit the most home runs in a season. I want to watch the documentary. It looks like it's quite good. I don't typically enjoy documentaries. Uh, the last one I watched on ESPN was that Michael Jordan thing at the beginning of COVID. I thought it was very boring. I didn't, I didn't get the hype about it. Uh, I saw there's also one about Oscar Pistorius. Um, you remember Oscar Pistorius? That was like one of the weirdest things. Uh, if, if you don't remember, uh, you, sh you should look this up. Oscar Pistorius, he was a sprinter in South Africa with no lower legs. And so he had these like bionic legs and with those, the, the the bionic legs, he could run sprints faster than most people with full legs. He could do like the 110 seconds or something. And he, his girlfriend was this beautiful model named Riva Steenkamp. That's a South African name if ever I heard one. And one night in 2013, Oscar Pistorius murdered his girlfriend, which that's bad. But what's even weirder was his explanation to try to justify it, which made no sense. He claimed he woke up in the middle of the night. He heard a noise coming from the bathroom. He assumed it was an intruder. So he straps on his peg legs. He gets his gun and then just starts shooting through the door of the bathroom. He didn't check if his girlfriend was still in the bed. He didn't, he didn't knock on the door. He didn't ask if anyone was in the bathroom. He just started shooting through the door and killed his girlfriend. And the whole story was so implausible. Like clearly he was trying to kill her. I don't know why, but what's, what's with these dudes who are murdering their girlfriends, right? And why haven't we heard more about Brian Laundrie? Like I'm, I'm reasonably certain that he's alive. He's kicking around. He's still under his parents' tomato beds in the backyard. Anyways, thank you for joining me today. Remember that I write and record this podcast to share a point of view you won't find elsewhere, and I depend on your support to do it. So please sign up as a paid subscriber. The link is in the podcast notes. You can go to leebrestler.substack.com slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends, your colleagues. Uh, a referral is, is meaningful. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, and uh, I'll be back with more soon.